This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. You're on, Bennett. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly talking to you live from um, Santa Monica here at the Internet Law Center, the heart of Silicon Beach. I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, we had a, a brief intermission last week um, caused by Hurricane Matthew, although um, we are sitting safely in the um, in Southern California, our studio would broadcast through Florida, and I had to relocate, um, evacuate during the uh, hurricane. So uh, apologize we couldn't come broadcast to you last week, um, but we have a great show for you today. And um, we have with us from Human Rights Watch, Christine Beckerly, and she is talking to us from Amman, Jordan, and we're going to talk about a report that the Human Rights, Camp, Human Rights Watch has done on um, women's rights in Saudi Arabia, particularly um, this legacy of male guardianship that we're going to talk about. And um, so we're going to have her on in a minute. Um, But first, I just want to highlight a couple of things. Um, We've had some past guests in the news. Um, You may recall we had Frank Farenkoff on um, back in 2013 to talk about when he was still head of the American Gaming Association, talk about the state of online gambling, and uh, he's also one of the co-directors of the Presidential Debate Commission, and he had a big role in um, preventing Donald Trump from sitting um, some of the um, people who were alleging they were harassed by the Clintons um, in the VIP box during the debate. Um, Last night we had Joe McGovern premiered his um, documentary, The Other Side, and I want to congratulate him on that. He was on um, about a year ago. And then Raj Chahan, who was on earlier this year with Homie, they just raised $3.2 million. Um, but it's fitting that one other note, today is um, National Free Thought Day that comes after recognition of the end of the Salem witch trials and the, the a legacy of religious tyranny, and that's uh, kind of fitting that we now are going to talk about some of the, the issues that are occurring in Saudi Arabia. It seems to be a similar pattern. Um, but, uh, Christine, are you with us? 
I'm with you, yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And um, so you are talking to us from Amman, Jordan. And um, how long have you been based in Amman? Um, I moved out here, I've been here for about a year. And tell us, for those who aren't familiar, tell us about Human Rights Watch. Sure. So Human Rights Watch is a global advocacy organization. We cover more than 90 countries. And for each of those countries, we sort of look at various violations of international law. And then we try and write detailed reports on those violations and advocate with governments and with the media and with the public to sort of say, how can we make sure these violations stop? And you have been focused on the, you're the Yemen and, and Kuwait researcher in the Middle East and North African division, um, and the Feinberg fellow covering um, Saudi Arabia and women's rights. Yes, yeah. So for portfolio. Yes. So basically, last year I was entirely focused on women's rights in Saudi Arabia, and then for the last few months I've been uh, doing Yemen and Kuwait work as well. So. Um, the role of women in Saudi Arabia or the plight of women in Saudi Arabia, um, it isn't, in some ways there has been some progress in some ways, so it hasn't been that different than, um, say, five centuries ago. Can you explain what, what is the status of women today in Saudi Arabia? So, well, the first thing I would say is actually what we found in our report and the reason we did our report was we wanted to really look at what had changed for Saudi women um, because we had written a similar report about eight years previously on the same issue, the male guardianship system. Um, and what we ultimately concluded was, you know, the Saudi government has made some changes for women in the country that have in some way eased restrictions on their lives. But if you sort of cut down to it, um, women are still systematically discriminated against within Saudi Arabia. And one of the biggest things is the male guardianship system, which means when a woman wants to get married, when she wants to study abroad, when she wants to exit prison, when she wants to travel, she needs a male guardian, a legal male relative to give his approval and his permission. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other things that make it difficult for women in Saudi Arabia. So for example, the famous one is they can't drive, which is true. Um, but there's also government-enforced sex segregation and a number of systematic barriers to them sort of functioning as full citizens in Saudi society. So, for example, the, the women were just given, one, the right to vote, and two, the right to hold office in Saudi Arabia. I believe it was last year they held the elections. Yeah, so in uh, December they had women... Women in Saudi Arabia voted and ran for office in municipal council elections for the first time in the country's history, which was, I mean, it should be noted that they still face systematic um, barriers when trying to register to vote and when trying to campaign as candidates. But it was sort of a symbolic victory in that women themselves in Saudi Arabia had campaigned for this right for years. So it really was a testament to their continued advocacy um, and sort of tirelessness that this was where they got and then a number of women actually won seats on the council still very very small proportions but it was something that i think a lot of women in saudi arabia said to themselves okay we've achieved this and like what can we achieve next but um having won the seat on the council i just read that recently the um the regime said that well 
you find you're on the council, but we still have to have segregation of the sexes. Yeah. You can't be in the same room. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was exactly right. So they basically, they had these elections. It got a lot of coverage in the Western media and everyone sort of said, oh, look at these reforms Saudi is making. Um, but soon after the government said, okay, all of the municipal councils have to be sex segregated. And actually one female counselor stepped down after that decision. Um, and a lot of women were saying this is going to impede their work because you're talking about a small council where people are supposed to come together and debate community issues. And now you're asking the women to be in a separate room and to participate via video link, which I mean, of course, is just not going to allow them, particularly when you're talking about one or two women on these councils versus however right. many men, it's, it's going to be very hard for the women counselors to pay, play a real role. And um, it, it is a, in, at this point in time, for example, the election was occurring while Saudi Arabia was, the, I believe, the chair of the Human Rights Committee at the UN? Um, it wasn't the chair, but it was on the Human Rights Council um, at the UN. So it's, and it's still actually a council member, um, and it's running for re-election actually as we speak. And Human Rights Watch has sort of said that given Saudi Arabia's domestic record, but also given its um, massive abuses in Yemen, it really, I mean, Saudi Arabia like doesn't have a place or it shouldn't have a place on the UN's human rights body. And, and, and so to what, do you think to what extent was the, the election possibly a window dressing to placate and maintain its status at the, on the Human Rights Committee? Um, I don't, I can't say whether or not or if they were directly linked, but I would say that in the past, Saudi Arabia has done certain things where it's sort of like a band-aid for the bigger systemic issues. So, you know, you allow women to vote and run for municipal council elections. Okay, that's great. But if they still can't drive themselves to the polling stations and if they still need a male guardian to give them the lease to prove where they live um, or to get various forms of identification, you're still talking about it being very difficult for women to register to vote or run as candidates if the men in their lives don't approve and support them, which they won't always do. No. The, the restrictions we're talking about in women not being able to drive and the male guardianship, is, is that something that it, it, it seems to be unique to Saudi Arabia, which suggests that it, it's not a, a Quranic restriction, but more just a, a carried on cultural restriction from the, the Bedouin community? So, um, yeah, so I mean, the male guardianship, the way in which it is practiced sort of at the scale and scope with which Saudi Arabia practices it is unique to Saudi Arabia. But other countries do have um, remnants of this system within their laws. So, for example, restrictions on getting married or uh other other countries will have set, like similar, but again, nowhere as large and intrusive as Saudi Arabia. Um, but what I will say is that we did talk to a number of women uh, who were very emphatic that in their understanding of Islam, sort of the way in which male guardianship is practiced is not necessary and that other fundamental principles within Islam, like equality and respect and these sorts of things go against um, what Saudi Arabia is practicing through the male guardianship system. And we actually, I mean, after the report was released, which I think is really great, is a Saudi religious official official came out publicly 
and said that male guardianship is only required when a woman sort of signs the marriage contract, which is much, much, much less than what Saudi Arabia is currently doing as a government. So I think the hope is that more um, religious officials and more people will be making these arguments as they have in the past, that really this is not religiously required uh, and actually you are internationally obligated to, to stop discriminating against your women like this. So let's walk through some of the examples. And, and one of the most troubling ones is um, a woman who is abused and wishes to press charges. Mm. Explain that to us. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so basically the way it works is that, the easiest way to explain it is just um, through walking back from some of the cases that we, we talked to and, and spoke with for this report. So, for example, um, I spoke to one woman who was in Saudi Arabia and she desperately, desperately wanted to leave the country. Um, and But to do so, she needed her father, her male guardian's permission to travel abroad. He, of course, wasn't going to let her travel abroad because she alleged that members of her family were abusive. Um so then the next question is, okay, but can you seek help uh, in Saudi Arabia to flee from what, what you're describing as an abusive situation? And what the response was, well, actually, if I were to try and flee, what my parents, what my father could do is bring a claim of disobedience against me in Saudi courts. And then, in fact, I could be the one who would get in trouble. And then... If that claim, and this actually happened to another woman, if the if the father brings a claim against a woman for disobedience and the court finds her to be disobedient, then they can actually punish her to, to prison time. And then if she goes to prison, she can finish her sentence, but then she needs to be released to a male guardian to leave the prison. So you're talking about a woman could have been put in prison by a man and then require his approval to leave the prison. Um and sort of even more, uh, not even more, but also in a very troubling way, we talked to a number of domestic violence and violence against women specialists because Saudi Arabia passed this law in 2013 that um, criminalized domestic abuse, which is okay, that's great, that's a step forward. Um, but within the definition of the law, it says that abuse is defined as that which exceeds a male guard, a guardian's authority, which leaves room, of course, for like some sense of disciplining um, if, if a court were to determine that it was within a guardian's authority. And what the law and its implementing regulations then go on to do is really prioritize reconciliation of the woman with her family over the woman's protection. And so there are a lot of problems in the law and a lot of problems in the way in which shelters deal with women who've, who've been abused, um, whereby they're really pushing them to reunite with their family as opposed to ensuring that they can live independently and away from abuse sort of in a safe and secure way. Um, so there's a lot of actual horror stories about violence against women in Saudi Arabia where women are facing um, huge challenges just not only just to escape abuse, but even if they escape abuse, to stay away from it and not sort of be forced back um, into a bad situation. And how prevalent is um, domestic violence in Saudi Arabia? Um, we don't have clear stats. I don't know if anybody has clear stats, um, but it's certainly high uh, in terms of, so I think one 
year they recorded 8,000 or something cases. Uh, but it's, I don't have clear stats, but all I do know is that um, from some of the numbers that we've seen, which are anecdotal, it does appear as though it is a situation that a number of women are dealing with and, and don't really have good options when they are dealing with those issues. So um, let's explain who the guardian is. So I'm, I'm a, a child, so I'm assuming it's my father. At what point does it not become my father? Okay, so when you're born, um, your dad's your male guardian um, until you get married. And then when you get married, your husband becomes your male guardian. Um, if neither your husband or your father are alive or around, then it can be a brother, it can be an uncle, or in some cases, it can even be your son. So we spoke with women whose children, sons were their male guardians. And, and which is kind of a, 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 an odd situation. And so they need their approval to, um, for example, to travel? Yeah. Yeah. To so uh, to study abroad and in some cases to study. And what about work? And to work, it's the government doesn't require companies to ask for male guardian permission, but a number of companies still do. And the government doesn't penalize them. And in fact, we actually spoke with a woman who worked for a government agency who was asked for guardian permission. So, And, and so Human Rights Watch does a report called Boxed In, Women in Saudi Arabia's Male Guardianship System. And um, what led you to, to initiate this report? And by the way, the report and background information on this issue is available on our blog at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, yeah, so we, we decided to initiate the report because, I mean, partly because there had been this, this reporting that Saudi Arabia had done made these reforms in various sectors, um, and because we had written this report in eight years before, but we hadn't really done a deep dive since. Um, and so we really did want to, like we went in with eyes wide open sort of saying, hey, let's see, and we're hoping to find positive change, right? Like you always want to see positive change. Um, so then what we did was like a very careful analysis of a variety of different aspects of a woman's, of a woman's life. So like you said, work, health, travel, um, marriage, divorce, child custody, violence against women, uh, and went through the laws, policies, and practices, as well as interviewing um, 60 Saudi citizens to say, what's the stat- like what's the status now? Um, and unfortunately, the conclusion after basically a year's worth of research was the male guardianship system remains largely intact, even though there's been some reforms, and it remains the most significant impediment to women's lives in Saudi today. And um, I think we're going we're gonna to take a short break, and when we come back, um, we'll have more on the um, Human Rights Watch study on male guardianships in Saudi Arabia and the Twitter campaign to change it. You're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
All of your favorite webmasterradio.fm programs. Affiliate Buzz. Next Gen Now. CEO Coach. Cyber Law and Business Report. Have found a new home. SEO Rockstars. SEM Synergy. Webcology. SEO 101. PPC Rockstars. Perk Strings with Maria Retan. All of your favorite webmasterradio.fm programs have found a new home. Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Money doesn't grow on trees. So you'll probably have a better chance of growing your business with cranberries. What? Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. I'm on Jordan, and we're talking about rights watch report on Fox Den, women in Saudi Arabia's male guardianship So, um, you did the report, and what was the response? Um, well, that has actually been the most incredible thing, uh, which I am still a little bit disbelieving of, honestly. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, basically for, I think over a hundred days at this point, there's been this incredible, um, homegrown campaign, uh, to end male guardianship with a number of super creative, super interesting efforts by Saudi women, um, really pushing the Saudi government on why they need to end male guardianship. Um, And it's been, yeah, it's been amazing because not only sort of have some of the incredible Saudi women's rights activists really been leading the charge, but there's just been this kind of outpouring of Saudi women on Twitter coming and giving their own takes on why male guardianship is bad, why it affects them, um, why they think it should go. And that's really, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been pretty amazing basically. Um, We were talking about the human rights watch report and on boxed in and the uh, how it became um viral on twitter can you explain how that happened uh sh- i can try um <laughs> well, I guess uh, it, so be- it just happened yeah it, well, it, well, we we tried. We 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 were trying to be strategic about it, um, but I think the reaction has even exceeded our expectations, basically. Um, and I actually I give full credit uh, to the Saudi women who sort of really took 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 it and ran with it, um, which is amazing. But basically, yeah, I mean, so we wrote this report and we spent all this time writing this report, and then we had this issue where it's like, all right, well, you know. 
uh, we don't have access to Saudi Arabia right now. It will be probably very difficult to get Saudi papers to be writing about our reports. Like, how do we get this message and make this report useful to a Saudi audience? And I mean, Saudi Arabia has one of the highest Twitter penetration rates, YouTube penetration rates, Snapchat penetration rates. Um, so they're really social media savvy. Um, and so we thought to ourselves, all right, well, let's target our advocacy at the social media sphere. Um, but then we had the secondary problem where it's like, okay, but we don't actually have, uh, what are we going to like share on social media? So we decided we were going to make these animated videos, which were sort of like based on an amalgamation of all of the information we had gotten and some of the key issues we felt had come up in our interviews with, um, a variety of women and our key recommendations to the Saudi government. And we made these like quick little short animated videos, about different aspects of the male guardianship system. Um, and we made these videos in collaboration with three particular Saudi women who know who they are, who I, I thank as much as I possibly can, who are very patient and sort of sat with us and said, this works, this doesn't work, this would be um, relevant, this is something that Saudis will get and think are funny. Um, so we really tried to make sure that uh, we were taking their feedback into account and um, letting them guide us a little bit in terms of like what would be relevant to a Saudi audience. Um, and then what we did was we reached out to a number of um, not only Saudi women, but also Saudi men who we knew uh, or knew of who were sort of like influencers on, on social media and Twitter and like had large numbers of following who tweeted good stuff. Um, some of whom, uh, we already knew some of whom we didn't and sort of said, Hey, this is coming out. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Um, if, if you agree with its findings and stuff, we would love if you could share it too. Uh, and, um, what was great was that the, the feedback from these people, sort of the first round, were really, really good. Um, and yeah, and um, then from there, we sort of released everything. And we released everything, obviously, in English and Arabic, and we staggered it. Um, but then over the subsequent weeks, what happened was this fantastic women's rights advocate, Hala Dosery, wrote an op-ed, and we used that to continue the campaign. Um and sort of kept putting certain stuff out for a couple of weeks. But then following that, uh, really, then Saudi women took it upon themselves to uh, start this Arabic hashtag that said Saudi women demand the male guardianship. So we had launched together to end male guardianship, sort of saying, you know, we Human Rights Watch are trying to like work with and in solidarity with Saudi women. Um, and then Saudi women themselves launched a new hashtag saying Saudi women demand the end to male guardianship in Arabic. Um, and then from there, I mean, it's just been incredible. So you said, you mentioned there's been graffiti of the Arabic hashtag. A group of Saudi women made these bracelets saying, I am my own guardian. This right. fantastic. Yeah. 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 I'm wearing one right now, actually. <laughs> um, I wear it with pride, uh, although it's bright blue. Um, and it's great because it's got it in English and Arabic and then a little car on it to, to give sort of credit to the driving movement. Um, but yeah. And then this Saudi artist, this Saudi woman artist who had made this like iconic image in 2012 saying, I am my own guardian with a male headdress, um, right. released it into the public domain and said, anybody can use this royalty free. And then people did, um, and then, yeah, and then that was going on for a couple of weeks where, like, really daily different women were posting videos of themselves and signs and 
sort of, again, like really giving their own spin to everything. Um, And then, yeah, and then over the last couple of weeks, uh, basically a bunch of the Saudi women got together and they said, hey, like, what can we do to show and really push this forward? And two of the things that they did was, one, they had women send individual telegram messages or like, so it's basically like individual direct messages to um, like the the, the king, yeah. The headdress and um, at some point, who started the petition? Um, so the petition was started by a Saudi women's rights activist. She wrote it, um, and then they really took it upon themselves to collect signatures. Um, and basically, is over the course of a month, petition or is it online? online petition so they wrote an online petition in arabic and opened it up to signature um and it was only in arabic uh opened it up to signature and we're sort of spreading it by um social media accounts so it was tweeted out first and then a bunch of the people then sort of were sharing it and tweeting it and they collected over fourteen thousand signatures um that way in the course of a month and then turned it, they had another fantastic women's rights activist, Zizel Youssef, um, go and hand, try and hand deliver it to, to the Royal court. Uh, but they actually told her actually that she had to send it in, mail it in, but they mailed it in. So now it's with the Royal court. But as far as I know, there's been no response so far. Um, and women are still tweeting and sort of still saying, you know, we're waiting, uh, please, please give us our rights. And, um, on that point, how unprecedented is this in terms of one women launching a online petition, and is there any risk to them in doing so? Um, so Saudi Arabia has in the past cracked down on activists um, and and uh, prosecuted activists and these sorts of things. So I can't, I don't think you can say ever that there's no risk. Um, but that's part of the reason why these women's rights activists are so courageous. Um, I have not yet seen re, uh, reprisals for women who have been active in this campaign. Um, but we also haven't seen a positive government response. So I guess we will see. Um but yeah, and then in terms of if this is unprecedented, I would say the level of engagement and the like sort of sustained nature of this campaign um, and like the number of women who have gotten engaged is really unprecedented. It's it's actually honestly incredible. Um, and I think a number of the women's rights activists would agree with that. Um, but what I would say is it definitely builds on other work that women's rights activists have done in the past. So you mentioned the driving campaign. So I think right. um, this is re- this campaign is really building on tactics and strategies and networks uh, that, that have been developed over years of activism. Now, we, we were talking about the driving campaign offline, so why don't you explain briefly what, what that was? Sure, yeah. So basically, since the 1990s, Saudi women have been campaigning for the right to drive. But most recently, in 2013, um, they launched the October 26th driving campaign. And so for that one, what they did was, again, it was a really social media heavy campaign. They filmed themselves driving. They filmed people giving them thumbs up while they were driving, filmed videos of themselves saying why they felt they had the right to drive. Um and in that campaign, you did see some pushback because you did see some women get picked up and say and have to sign pledges that they wouldn't do it again. And uh, yeah, so and they had done similar campaigns in earlier years as well. And you said they had to sign pledges that, that they wouldn't do it again with, by, by the government. 
Yeah, well, actually, it was their guardians had to sign pledges that the women wouldn't do it again. So it was irony of ironies. Um, That is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes, there's a certain twisted part to that. Um, um, But you do have a situation currently in Saudi Arabia where bloggers are being um, prosecuted for saying un-Islamic things or disagreeing with the state. So yeah, no, I mean, it, and, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's not like it is, a, it is a place where there is like freedom of expre- expression is not protected and you need to be really careful um, because there, there are serious risks involved. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I've been so surprised by the women's campaign for the last couple of months, because I honestly, like I was hoping of course that women, the report would be useful to women in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I was hoping that, you know, they also felt that our conclusions and our recommendations were useful. Um, but I also knew, you know, there are risks entailed with speaking out too loudly or speaking too critically of the government. Um, so I think that that just underscores how amazing the reaction has been because even with those risks, like these women really are pushing forward and sort of saying enough's enough. Like it's time. It's 2016. Let's go. And it sounds like what you're talking about is there's a real organic, you know, groundswell, almost like a woman's spring and taking place. And, but the Saudi government seems to be saying that this is just outside agitation. So the only, yeah, so a hundred percent, a hundred percent, it is a groundswell of Saudi women, which is like, again, just fantastic. And one would hope that rather than ignore them, the Saudi government would be like, oh, wow, these women have really interesting, creative things to say. We should listen to them and get restrictions off of them. But um, I am eternally optimistic. Um, but uh, what the government has said, which which I really dislike, is the head of the National Society for Human Rights, which is a government official, a quasi-governmental body, said, you know, Saudi society, it's traditional, we move slowly, our culture is different. Um, And I think, honestly, arguments like that at this point are a little bit absurd, given how many Saudi women and men have come out and spoken against the guardianship system, because at, at what point then do you say, actually, it's not culture, it's not society, it's the government and the government's policies that are enforcing these things, um, and that's what needs to change. And your your right. people within your society are making it very clear to you what they would prefer, and what they would prefer is the end to male guardianship. And what what is the role of the international community, or I guess I should say, what should be the role of the international community in, in something like this? Because they're going to say, don't interfere with our internal affairs. Yeah, well, you know, and and people say that um, for a lot of things, but I think, I mean, the first thing, of course, like it is not at all unclear what Saudi's legal obligations are. So they're a signatory to the an international convention saying you can't discriminate against women. So on that sense, like the international community does have a role because this is a question of international law. Um, other than it being a question of international law, like there's two things that I think the international community could play a positive role on these issues. One, supporting Saudi women in their ongoing campaign. So it's really, it's not about, you know, we're going to go save Saudi women. It's about Saudi women themselves are demanding this strongly, repeatedly, and for years. How can we support them? Uh, And I think there's a number of ways you can do that, retweeting them, following them, um, 
you know, listening to what they're asking of people. And then lastly, what I would say is this is really a unique moment because uh, in Saudi Arabia right now, I mean, the news has covered a lot about economic woes and these sorts of things. Um, and the deputy crown prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, released a couple of months ago, this like grandiose economic vision for the future vision 2030. And he's actively courting Western businesses and Western governments to get engaged with this economic plan. And which puts these companies and these governments in a position of leverage, right? And like, it's not a leap to say, in fact, it's like pretty obvious, if you want economic reform, what you really should be doing is like lessening restrictions on half your population, i.e. women, and helping them contribute to the economy in a much more, um, you know, normal way. Um, so what I would really hope is that these companies and the governments that are engaging with Saudi on this economic reform plan are really putting front and center the need for Saudi to make reforms in the way in which it deals with its female citizens. And do, do, do you have confidence they will? That Saudi will actually do that? Or that no, companies that the, and governments the will? will the, the businesses and governments will press them on that. Uh, no, I, I, I generally probably won't have confidence until I see it. Um, and what I would hope though, so I can say not what I expect, but what I would hope is that they don't like squander this opportunity because again, this isn't about them coming in and saying, save the Saudi women. This is about them coming in and saying, it is very obvious that Saudi women want these reforms to be made. Like, again, you're looking at like a, basically a 15,000 signature petition, three months of sustained activism online. Uh, so it's just like what else do you need plus an opportunity sort of in time to really make these claims to the Saudis when they might listen. Um, so I would just right. very much hope that people wouldn't squander that. You know, it's, it's somewhat of a tangent, but you know, I went the here, I'm here in Los Angeles and a big deal this year is that the football team has come back and I went to the game on Sunday and I was talking to some uh, my friend about kind of the history of when they first moved here from Cleveland. And what actually led to the integration of the NFL was the fact that the landlord, the, the Coliseum in Los Angeles said, um, you can use this as long as you integrate your team. And so it was a condition of their lease to integrate um, their team, which led to the first you know, African-American players in the NFL. And it's it just, you know, it, it, it's something as simple as that and making a huge step. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the, um, like, that's the thing, right. Is like a lot of these big companies, like they could really be a force for good if they wanted to. Um, and again, right now, like in terms of Saudi, like they do have this opportunity to be a force for good. And like, I just, I'm assuming, I would hope that all of them agree with the principle that women are equal to men. So like, I, I very much hope that, <laughs> um, but uh, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but I, I really yeah, do hope that they- You they obviously weren't watching TV the last week, but- um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I expect that that's like a thing that everyone agrees with, but again, that's something that I've learned has been an incorrect assumption for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would just hope that like, listen, why would you want to be engaged 
in a system that has ramped like rampant gender discrimination, particularly if you've got female employees and female bosses and female people who like, you know, and you respect, like, why wouldn't you want to give that same respect to Saudi women? Um, so I would very much hope that again, they don't, they act as the good guys in this situation because they have the power to do so. Now, what is, what is um, Human Rights Watch next um, effort on this area? So we're still working. We're basically working very closely with a number of the Saudi women and sort of saying to them when and if is, is it useful for us to come in, basically, because what we definitely do want to do is take our lead from them. Um, and I think what we're doing is we're continuing to push in a number of different ways um, the recommendations that we came up with for the report. And I think the next question will be, you know, is Saudi going to listen to these women? And if not, like, how can we increase the pressure and say, listen, you're not going to make these reforms. Then there, there are costs to that. Um, or one would hope there are costs rather, but, right. but yeah, so that's, that's where we're at. So, um, what, what then, after, you know, what, what should our allies do? What should the United States do? What should, you know, the EU do? Um, so what I would say uh, for foreign governments is that in their conversations with Saudis, they should not let them forget that this is a serious issue. Like, I get it. Like, there are a lot of issues that Western allies have to discuss with Saudi Arabia. But this, like the treatment of half of its population, should always be at the forefront until Saudi makes the reforms necessary. Um, and then I would say for foreign companies – they really should be having these conversations with Saudi, not just as a, we hope that you do this, but like, this is a requirement for us to do business with you because this is a principle that we aren't willing to compromise on. Um, but yeah. I mean, for example, there was all the outcry about Raif Badawi, um, who, who I believe is still being detained, but he hasn't received any more lashes after getting his first set. Um, but how many, foreign leaders actually raised his plight with the Saudi government. I don't I know. Charles did, but I, I, I but I'm, I'm not, I, I wonder how often you know, that gets raised at, at high levels. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you because what happens behind those closed doors is a mystery, I think to many of us. Um, but but I think, I mean, again, like you've got Western governments in a particularly unique situation with a particularly unique opportunity right now to be pushing the, the women's rights issue. Um, and again, not as, you know, like a neocolonialist whatever, but like, you know, we're actually doing this in solidarity with what your female citizens are saying. Um, so whatever their past practice was, I would very much hope that male and female heads of state would really be making this uh, a central pillar of their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now, um, well, we only have a little bit of time left. If people want to learn more about Human Rights Watch and, and, and particularly in your work, where, where should they go? Sure. So they can go to Human Rights Watch's website, www.hrw.org, um, or you can follow me on Twitter at at K underscore Beckerly, B-E-C-K-E-R-L-E. -E. Um, and yeah, and we've got on, on the website, we've got a Saudi page, a Yemen page, a Kuwait page um, that has all of our work, both on women's rights and on, on uh, the countries that we cover. 
Now you, what, what, very briefly, what, what is what is going on in Yemen that you're working on in the in uh, one, one and a, a half lot minutes? of. <laughs> a lot of very terrible stuff. Uh, there was the Saudi. The Saudis are a high in my life right now. The Saudi-led coalition um, bombed a funeral ceremony on Saturday, uh, which killed over a hundred people and wounded over five hundred um, in what appears to be uh, an unlawful attack, um, and had massive civilian casualties. Um, and so we're, what we're working on right now, and we actually are planning to put out tonight, is a statement on what happened and what went wrong and why and what this means for U.S. Uh, support to the coalition in a campaign that has been marred by numerous violations of the laws of war. Right, and the hospitals and other attacks. Hospitals and schools and markets. It's just like, then now they've added a funeral to the list of abuses. So really uh, well, terrible stuff, honestly. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and I also want to just congratulate you. I mean, here's a, a case of, you know, making the effort. You know, the boxing report just kind of ignited something, and then you see the power of social media. And and who knows? I hope maybe a year from now, if we talk, we, you know, this Saudi Arabia might be different for women, and you know, we can only hope. But uh, I definitely want to thank you, and uh, it's been dear. Your efforts there are very valuable, and your insights today were very much appreciated. So, but that's all we have for today. Um, this is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica. You can check us out at internetlawcenter.net. And don't forget, our information on today's show is available on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. But I want to thank you again um, for joining us, and have a great week. This is Ben and Kelly. We'll be back next week for another edition of Cyberlong Business Report. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.